Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. Well, the Mueller investigation is reportedly nearing its end with a report being delivered as soon as next week. The big question is, what are we going to learn about it, if anything? Joining us now is Seth Waxman, partner at Dickinson Wright in Washington, D.C. He is also a former federal prosecutor in the District of Columbia. Seth, thank you so much for being with us. I want to start there. What do you expect to learn uh, when the Mueller report does come out? Well, good morning. Uh, with regards to the Mueller report, now I expect to see a fulsome description of the Mueller investigation. I know there's been some discussion of a summary report. I, I just don't see that happening. I think that this is a two-year investigation. Mr. Mueller and his team have dedicated an incredible amount of time and effort to this, and it's such in the American people's interest to see the, the full scope of that investigation, obviously taking out any national security type of confidential information or classified information. But I, I just don't believe that we're going to see a truncated report or something that really doesn't explain to the American people exactly what happened and why. So Seth, just for our audience, who exactly decides what gets released? So the report Mr. Mueller generates will be given to uh, the Attorney General, and by the special counsel regulations, it is the Attorney General that will decide, uh, you know, what to release to Congress, and then, uh, of course, to the American people. And so, in in theory, Mr. Barr could uh, send across a truncated report or or refuse to send it. In fact, but uh, he's on record by saying he wants to make it available to the greatest extent possible. The only reservation he gives is, you know, for national security reasons or classified information. In my, in my opinion, uh, Mr. Mueller knows that and will write a report that's likely exercise those portions out or put them into a separate addendum. So the report he hands over will be either sanitized in such a way as that it could be released to the public in full. Seth, it's sort of interesting because a lot of commentators are saying that probably the Mueller investigation won't have a smoking gun, uh, probably won't result in further indictments. Do you think that there is evidence to support that view? Well, it's all speculation. Um, you know, in my opinion, I think that there are allegations that that would support criminal charges and and a referral to Congress. I don't think that uh, Mr. Mueller will indict a sitting president. I'm on the side of the fence that a, a sitting president cannot be indicted. Uh, that it's an impeachment proceeding that it would have to take place, and then uh, if a criminal charge were to be filed, it would take place after that. But um, you know, I think there is, from what we know publicly, we have this. Just to take one example, this very critical June 9th Trump tower meeting where the Russians were offering dirt on Hillary Clinton and the people, the Russians that were in that meeting worked for companies whose sole purpose was to reduce or eliminate sanctions on Russians. I think it'd be very naive to think that when the Russians came in and offered that dirt on Hillary Clinton that they weren't seeking something in, in return, especially given the company they represented. So if that in fact took place, a quid pro quo, an exchange for dirt on Hillary Clinton for reduction or promise to reduce or eliminate sanctions, that fits into several federal bribery sta- or federal statutes, including bribery. So um, we know that from the public record as to what, we, what we've learned from the Mueller investigation. I think that, along with several other areas, are, are very um, rife with potential criminal conduct. And I just don't see, you know, at this stage of the game, Mr. Mueller, you know, after two years walking away without some um, referral to Congress that impugns the president to one degree or another. 
So Seth, let's just say that uh, something less than the full report is released. What are the options for Congress? Well, Congress can conduct its investigations, can move forward using the report as a basis to uh, launch additional investigations. They could move forward and learn facts that cause them uh, either things they know now or that they learn to um, convene, uh, convene impeachment proceedings or to make referrals to other U.S. attorney's offices for federal prosecution. So while, you know, whatever the Mueller report says, it does not necessarily end the matter. Um, and of course, there are other U.S. attorney's offices offices across the country, including SDNY, most importantly, that are conducting uh, investigations, also state investigators, especially in New York, that have ongoing investigations. But, you know, in my opinion, what this comes down to is Mueller versus Trump. You know, it's, that's the, the headline. That's the main movie we've all come to want to see. And to the extent Mr. Mueller exonerates or walks Mr. Trump, you know, that is a, obviously a huge victory for Mr. Trump. And while those other investigations may or will likely continue forward, it's my opinion, that if Mr. Trump is exonerated by Mr. Mueller, or at least you know not not uh, referred for impeachment proceedings or, or criminal charges, um, that that's really the big uh, the big to do in this. And so it'll be very interesting to see what happens. Yeah, just piggybacking on that, we did get the headlines earlier today saying that New York state prosecutors are preparing uh, charges for Paul Manafort if President Trump does decide to pardon him. You mentioned SDNY, the Southern District of New York, uh, the U.S. Attorney's Office in Manhattan. And I'm wondering, we've been hearing about the investigation that's ongoing there into the Trump organization. Who do you think that will involve? I mean, is it just, could it go up to President Trump himself or does this involve some peripheral characters as well as relatives of his? No, I think it could reach all the way up to Mr. Trump himself. I mean, he was the CEO of this 501c3, a, a charitable organization. And so when in, in that area, when individuals make donations to charitable organizations, um, there's a mandate as to how that money should be used. And if that money is diverted away from those purposes, altruistic purposes, whether it's, you know, giving to the Boy Scouts or your local community organization or whatever the purpose is that this charitable foundation was constructed, when money is diverted away away from those to personal gains, like a personal portrait put up in a golf, uh, one of Trump golf courses, or the many other things that we've heard about, that is deceptive. That is fraudulent. And on the federal level, it can be charged as wire fraud. On the state level, it could be um, brought, uh, allegations can be brought as they are by the New York Attorney General. So to the extent Mr. Trump, the president, participated in that, was the beneficiary of it, you know, knowingly and intentionally um, fostered that scheme, he could be implicated. So, Seth, just on the Mueller report, what is your sense of timing here? We, we kind of hear reports that it could be really any day now. Is that, in fact, your, your sense as well? Yeah, again, this is the world of speculation that we're all in. We're, we're hearing things that make us think that the report may be in the offing. Of course, Mr. Barr is on record now saying it's coming. Mr. Rosenstein, who months ago said he wouldn't leave the Justice Department until the report was going to be issued, and, and now he's announced his departure. We're hearing, I don't know, reports of prosecutors on the special prosecu- uh, counsel's team boxing up boxes and reaching out to former employees to see where their next job may lie. 
you know, you take all that together, it seems like we're heading towards a critical mass uh, of this report being issued, whether that's next week or in the coming weeks, it's, it's difficult to say. But, you know, we have, you know, by all accounts, we've reached the top of the ladder, or Mr. Mueller has, you know, he's gone after Manafort Stone, all the other prime targets, the two that stand out that haven't been addressed are, of course, Donald Trump Jr. and Jared Kushner. Um, but what we don't know is if Mr., especially with regards to an interview of those people, but Mr. Mueller may have requested that interview. And if their lawyers had said they'll plead the fifth, um, then there is nothing, no interview to take place. Right. And, right. you know, if, if, if those individuals' lawyers have kept their mouths shut, uh, we okay. would never know that. Great. Seth, really appreciate it. Seth Waxman, partner at Dickinson Wright in Washington, D.C., on the Mueller investigation, which should be announced soon. The way that companies are communicating, com, uh, communicating, I'm trying to communicate, communicating with their customers is changing dramatically in a time of artificial intelligence. Our next guest is very familiar with that, Chris Greiner. He is chief financial officer of Live Person, uh, which reported earnings yesterday. Shares surging today uh, in response up 7.5%. Chris joins us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers studios. Chris, thank you so much for being here. Let's start with what is Live Person? Yeah, first of all, great to be with y'all. Uh, Live Person is a leading provider to Fortune 500 companies, conversational commerce solutions that enables them to digitally transform how they engage with their consumers. Okay, and in, in English? Sure. Uh, when was the last time you dialed a 1-800 number and how did you feel afterwards? Okay. Uh, it, did not. Yeah, so. Uh, Negative. <laughs> You have to force yourself to do it, uh, and it's not a pleasant experience afterwards. Brands are catching up with that. We believe that uh, we're past the point of inevitability where uh, consumer behavior of messaging over using voice uh, is here, and companies now, brands, are catching up with that, and uh, we are enabling them to be where their consumers are, whether that's on Apple Business Chat, Google, Alexa, WhatsApp. We're creating the integrations that allow them to directly connect their consumers in a way that's uh, transforming. So what are some of the examples of some of the companies that have used your service successfully and you know, kind of what, what's been their success story? Sure, uh, T-Mobile uh, is, is, is one of our uh, clients. T-Mobile's uh, really uh, an early adopter in this phase. T-Mobile has gone to the lengths of actually turning off their IVR. Uh, creating a team of experts turn, turn for their, their, their interactive voice response okay. uh, system. So when you call really, up... Paul? Yes. Thank <laughs> you. I needed the definition. <laughs> no problem. Uh, which informed team of experts. So you are now assigned uh, a team of experts to you that you can message. Uh, the same way you message friends and family. You reach them through the app, uh, through SMS, through Apple Business Chat, uh, and uh, it's been transformative to their customer-first focus. So you just reported earnings yesterday, uh, forecast at 2019 adjusted EBITDA of 10 to $15 million. You expect modest losses in the first half of this year due to hiring plans, uh, but you see renewed profit in the second half, hiring plans. Who are you hiring? Is it just computers to program themselves? Uh, we're hiring people. <laughs> uh, we, we, we do. We do purchase a lot of servers. Uh, but let me start first actually with uh, what's driving that. 
And if you look at the company's growth performance, we had a 16-point swing in our revenue growth rates from 2017-2018. So we posted 14% growth this year off of a down 2 and 17. Uh, this year, we signaled that by the fourth quarter, we'll be at high teens, 20% range, accelerating to at least 20% in 2020. So what's driving that demand environment for us? We have pipelines that are up 80%. Uh, so we have uh, that high-quality opportunity of having our pipelines outpace our sales capacity right now. And pipelines in this industry means companies basically saying, we are going to want your services, we're gonna contract with you, we'll start paying it out over time. That's exactly right. So the number of companies that are interested in conversational commerce, uh, if you look at the count of those opportunities, it's up 80% just over the last six months. So that demand is surging to the point where we need to now catch up with our sales capacity. So in order to get as much in-year yield as we can, to get them productive as quickly as we can, we're interested in hiring them in the first and second quarters. So what's what's your competition? What's the competitive marketplace for your service, your technology? We replace voice. Uh, Anywhere where there's a voice call, we're replacing it with messaging and increasingly messaging that's fully automated through bots uh, and AI. So think of Nuance, Genesis, Avaya. uh, Those are the the folks that we're displacing in their uh, call centers. What's the hardest thing about a call to replicate using artificial intelligence? Best practice is not to fully replicate it, actually. The best practice is to pair a bot with a human. You all have probably, as much as you've been frustrated with a 1-800 number before, you could be equally as frustrated as a generic bot experience where you're, you're either on a web chat or on a message, you're trying to get something back and it just defaults the completely wrong answer. So the best practice is actually to pair that human with the bot. We call it a tango situation, just like the dance. And uh, the difficult part, if you will, is the routing and knowing what the intent of you and I uh, in our conversations is. We take in tens of millions of conversations a month. So data is one of the moats of the company. And when you can take in that amount of data, you can then predict intents and you can then pair those intents with responses. So the agent can sit at their console and the bot can be continuously making recommendations for how to respond. So now they can be much more productive. So a great example of that is if I'm handling a call that can handle one at a time. Right? unless I'm really skilled, but most people can only handle one call at a time. Uh, I know we try many times, but we're not successful. In, in a um, web chat scenario, maybe four to six, you can scale to 40 messages at a time uh, when you're uh, in a messaging format, and then you can scale to close to 100 when automation is embedded. So think about the productivity that now comes into play with the consumers, uh, the customers that we serve every day. Fascinating. Thank you so much for being here. Well, thank you all. Appreciate it. Chris Greiner is CFO, Chief Financial Officer of Live Person, based in New York. Well, it looks like Philadelphia has sued seven banks, including J.P. Morgan Chase and Bank of America, accusing them of costing local governments billions of dollars by colluding to fix prices on floating rate bonds issued to public uh, to finance public finance work. So to help us dig down into this issue is Joe Mysack. Joe is editor of Bloomberg Brief, covering the municipal market for Bloomberg News. He joins us in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio uh, here in New York. So, Joe, is this suit in Philadelphia similar to what we've seen in California and Illinois? And what's what's going on here? Oh, baby. (laughs) This lawsuit, 60 pages is the complaint, and it reads like, um, how did Truman Capote 
describe in cold blood a nonfiction novel. The narrative flow is powerful in this thing. Yes, it's very similar. It's it's similar to the key Tam lawsuits that were filed in California, Illinois, New York, and Massachusetts. In that, it says, <clears throat> excuse me, a group of remarketing agents of variable rate demand obligations conspired. They colluded. There was collusion to inflate prices on these instruments. And uh, the difference between the Kitam lawsuit and this, this is an antitrust lawsuit where a municipal issuer itself says, you ripped us off, meaning they're seeking uh, class, uh, class status for this lawsuit. The Kitam lawsuit is where a whistleblower comes in and says, we are suing on behalf of this state and its municipalities because they have been ripped off. And this is just, uh, this is the biggest thing to hit the municipal market in probably a decade. Okay, let's get a sense of the scope of the potential losses for municipalities selling bonds as a result of this uh, alleged collusion between banks. Billions. Really? Billions. They, the, uh, the, the, who the, bears the cost? The municipality or the investor or both? Taxpayers, no, right? The, this taxpayers, oh, right. There exactly. we go. The issuer. The issuer <laughs> have, pays a higher rate to borrow money than it might normally. So, how much, and how much higher, just in, in rate terms? Well, they said actually that uh, VRDO rates were about, to, I think, 27 basis points higher than they should have been. VRDO being variable rate debt demand, obligations? Demand de- obligations. Demand obligations. Right. Okay. Uh, and, uh, you know, little things mean a lot. So a quarter basis point? Yeah. And, you know, rates were very low at this period, we know. What period is this? Uh, about 2008 to... And, and this is amazing. They say uh, by around 2015, 2016, members of the cartel, as the complaint puts it, uh, caught on to the fact that they were being uh, uh, investigated and surveilled, if you will. And after that, then the VRDO rates sort of normalized. And it's just, uh, it's very, you know, these are all allegations you know, jury trial demanded. Still, as I say, it makes for a compelling narrative. So, so Joe, we've had these suits or similar types of suits all around the country. Have we had any resolution or have we had a, any scenario where we could see what the banks are saying and what, what's, what's their argument? Banks are, uh, well, the banks have been, you know, they did respond in Illinois and asked that the complaint be dismissed. And the judge in Illinois said, no. You know, your motion to dismiss is denied. We're going ahead with this trial. Everywhere else, those other three states, the process is moving along. And man, it takes the lawyers a while to get things going. So here's my question. So banks got together and they said, we're going to set the rates here so that if the municipality uh, tries to go out and shop around for a better rate, they can't get one. Uh, Right? Is that the idea here? Not exactly. 
So this is is this resale? But but no, it's you know. Or that's, is this a, is this new issue? This is uh, you know bonds that are out there. Okay, so, and so this they, is existing they're debt every week. So. They're reselling them, and the banks get together and they say this is the price uh, that we are going to sell them at. Yeah. Uh, and then the implication is, should any municipalities want to borrow, uh, they have to borrow at the uh, higher rate, the cartel rate, the cartel rate. But, but but so the, here's my question: Are the banks profiting from this? Or is it their customers? Oh no, the banks would profit from this because what they, uh, the essential argument here is that the investor, which sometimes included subsidiaries of the banks themselves, um, the investor would be so happy with the rates he has that he doesn't put the bonds back, which is the normal process. So if you put the bonds back, these banks would have to remarket them. So by keeping the rates high enough, they kept the investors happy out there, getting that higher yield, and you know the issuers are paying up, and they're you know there's a lid on the market. They would never have to sit there and say, okay, we have to uh, remarket the bonds now and look for a whole new set of investors. So they were marking the bonds at lower prices than where they should have otherwise been, yeah. implying higher rates. And that was the objective. A fascinating story. Thank you so much for being with us. Joe Mysack, editor of the Bloomberg Brief, focused on the municipal bond market here in uh, our 1130 studios in New York. Really interesting story, really interesting issue that is evolving. Uh, frankly, it's a question to me. On one hand, yes, it's a civil lawsuit, but you have to wonder at what point other agencies come in if there is actual uh, price manipulation, which is essentially what the allegation here is. There is a big debate brewing in credit markets. Has the U.S. high-yield bond market gone too far, too fast? And joining us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studios is Rob Waldner. To answer that question, Rob Waldner is Chief Strategist and Head of Multi-Sector uh, Fixed Income at Invesco, helping to oversee more than $200 billion. Thank you so much for being here, Rob. So where do you weigh in on this? Is it a time to still be buying the U.S. high-yield bond market, or is it a time to step back and reduce risk? Well, thank you for having me, Lisa. I think that the, the short answer is you want to have credit exposure in your portfolio to get your yield and combine that with a duration at this part of the cycle argues for having high yield exposure in your portfolio. When we, you know, we'd like to compare everything to the start of the year or the end of the year, and it looks like high yield has rallied an awful lot this year. But, you know, we would say that end of the year was a was a, 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 a sort of strike, a price that was set in the midst of a Fed potentially making a policy mistake. So to compare it to the end of the year is probably not the right way to, to think about high yield. So, Rob, I mean, we have the U.S. economy uh, slowing um, from last year to coming in here to 2019. We have the uncertainty in Europe and the growth rates there, you know. Brexit's not helping at all. And then, of course, China is slowing, whether it's 6 or 6.5%, who knows. But given the slowing global macroeconomy, how are you positioning your portfolio? So it is absolutely true the global economy is slowing. The U.S. is we're packed past peak growth. We're relatively late cycle in the growth cycle. And investors are caught between that and the policymakers. And what we see is when you have slowing growth and tighter policy, like we did at the end of last year, it's a mess for the markets. But the Fed has relented. We think may reset, 
essentially going forward um, to be much more accommodative. We know that the Chinese have become much more accommodative. Uh, they've introduced a, a number of different stimulus measures so that the policymaking has been much more accommodative in the last several months, offsetting that, that lower growth. So we're stuck between slowing growth and accommodative policy, which means it's not a, a massive bull market, but you want to own your credit and you want to own your duration. So if there is a mistake and the slowing growth overwhelms, you will get some protection from that duration. I hear a little voice screaming behind him, Goldilocks, Goldilocks, Goldilocks. <laughs> I mean, it seems like this is sort of the perfect scenario for credit. And that's why you've got JP Morgan, for example, raising its U.S. high yield bond market uh, forecast for, for 2019 to 10.5% from its prior 8% prediction today. Yeah, well, it's not Goldilocks because Goldilocks, you'd have to have, I think, the growth picture be a little bit better. Uh, we will get some volatility, but what you do have is a grind. Uh, so it's not the perfect environment, but it is definitely a, a grind going forward. So do you, do you recommend, I mean, given the volatility we've seen in the market over the last you know, four or five months, the slowing growth, are you, are you feeling comfortable going out duration a little bit farther on, on the curve, or do you prefer to stay in a little bit tighter? Uh, for the last uh, several years, we've been in a rising rate environment, and investors have wanted to stay short. Our message is we're in a risen rate environment. And in that environment, uh, you want to get some duration back into your portfolio because as bond investors, we know the best offset to credit exposure, if credit exposure is going to go poorly, is a bit of duration. So if you can offset your credit exposure to get to get you yield with some duration for protection, you have, an, you have uh, the best setup. Is there going to be another credit crisis ever again? Well, not, for, not during my career, I don't think. Really? <laughs> yeah. Because we've had... How long do you plan to stay in the, uh, in the business? I mean, really, I, I'm wondering because it seems like everybody's been, you know, screaming that the sky is falling at every downturn uh, ever since 2008 because it was so scarring. But is it going to be a repeat or no? So look at the, the Fed put out their financial stability report, uh, you know, last year, at the end of last year. And they highlighted, I mean, it's very clear if you go through the details of that, there really isn't the tinder for a liquidity crisis, if you like, right? There is Even no, in China? Even in India? Well, <clears throat> so China, the, the, the benefit that China has is a very large closed system, and they can control the leverage uh, within, their, within their system and control their own policymaking. So, um, you know, there, there could be some individual, uh, there's, there's, there's going to be credit events, certainly, especially with a slowing economy. As we go, as the economy continues to slow, you will get credit events, you'll get idiosyncratic events. But a liquidity crisis would say that the entire system kind of contracts together. And I don't expect to see that. So, Rob, how about, how about the U.K.? Is, is, does Brexit make that market almost untouchable until you get some clarification or are there some values there? Well, there's values there. Uh, the, we, believe that, uh, we believe that the chance of a hard Brexit is very low. But that being said, uh, if it, 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 in order to realize the value that you see, You've got to get some sort of something other than a hard Brexit. You either have to have a, a you know, punt, punt that decision or a, a sort of soft Brexit. So we need some activity to realize the value, but it's undoubted that sterling's trading too cheap, and we would look a lot of the assets, sterling assets, and say, hey, they're trading trading too cheap. What was the biggest move that you've made recently to your thesis and thus your recommendations with respect to sector allocations? Uh, so the biggest move that we've made in the last couple of months is to add essentially move from a short duration, uh, excuse me, from a, a, a short credit long duration view to a long credit long duration view to add that credit back into portfolios and keep that uh, duration. So we would be overweight duration in portfolios and, and slightly overweight credit because this environment where 
you created value in the credit markets, but you still have the risk of slowing, those two come together quite well. Well, you don't know it, but Fridays is Muni Days here on Bloomberg Markets. So where do Munis... He may know it. <laughs> yeah, maybe he does. Maybe he's an avid listener. Um, where do Munis fit into your view of kind of the, the fixed income portfolio? Uh, so, uh, you know, we have a, so our view of munis, obviously they, you know, they have, they're sort of distinct from a lot of the taxable markets because of course they have the special tax exemption, right? But so we, we think about munis right here as offering opportunities. You know, we think that uh, there's a lot of people who will be surprised that they didn't get much of a tax cut when they're doing the taxes in the next uh, month or so. Uh, they didn't get the tax cut that they thought they were going to get. Uh, and we'll renew interest in munis. And uh, so we think that, that that's will be relatively good technical demand for munis. And at the same time, you know, the, the decent growth continues to support the fundamentals in the muni market. Is there any asset that you won't touch right now? Um, the good, good question. Uh, the um, wheels are spinning. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> He's going uh, through it all. You know, uh, they German boons, <laughs> Italian bank debt. Uh, we'd be very, we would be a bit nervous about Italy, I think. That, Italy? That's a, yeah. Um, you know, ultimately, the medium term picture in Italy, it's hard to see how we, we make it through uh, in, in the medium term. In our view, there's, you know, with the amount of debt that's there, and if, if we don't get growth up, uh, there could be a potential for some, some issue in Italy. But back in the U.S. high yield market, is there, are there, What's the best value you see in the U.S. high yield market, sector-wise? Uh, well, you know, we we believe that at this point in the cycle, right, where you have potential for a lot of idiosyncratic stuff, you saw Kraft Heinz right now, right? Yep. You have this slowing growth. You really want a diversified credit b bucket. So we would actually recommend a bit of investment grade, a bit of high yield, uh, maybe some bank loans. Um, ac across the board. Good, excellent. Rob, thank you very much for your insight on all things fixed income. That's Rob Waldner, Chief Strategist and Head of Multi-Sector for Invesco Fixed Income. A little over $200 billion in assets under management. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.